from Fresh Air Studios in Plymouth, this is In Conversation With, the podcast from Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce, presented by Stuart Elford. With special guests, Adrian Vinken, former CEO, Theatre Royal Plymouth. I remember sitting on an underground train, and you know the Metro, the free paper there, and there was a picture of, I think it was from the planning application, which was a artist's impression of Messenger outside the theatre. And the caption for it was, giant sculpture of squatting sex worker. And Jeremy Hayward of Lloyds Bank. There are so many institutional barriers to young black entrepreneurs accessing the right advice and guidance to get them going. Hello there, I'm Stuart Elford, Chief Executive of Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce with another edition of our Chamber podcast called In Conversation With. The first half is Chamber Chat, where I talk to prominent figures from the Southwest. And today's guest probably couldn't be more prominent in the Southwest. I am delighted to welcome Adrian Vinken. Hello, Adrian. Hi, Stuart. Now, I should have said Adrian Vinken, CBE. Do I need to sort of curtsy? Not at all. Wow. I mean, congratulations. That's fantastic. It was a nice, positive end to another otherwise pretty trying year wasn't it really so but yeah. on a personal basis oh well well done but you're already an OBE yeah that's correct that was for services to cultural leadership and regeneration because I worked in Sheffield and was involved in regenerating an area of inner city Sheffield on the back of a major arts project I led and I was a regional leader for culture down here for a number of years so that was very nice but this is for services to theatre which is lovely given that I'm just concluding my career it was a nice cherry on the cake I guess. Yes how many years did you do as CEO of the Theatre Royal? 31 that was more than I intended but uh, was it really 31 years you've been here? Wow. It's the only theatre I ever worked in. No. Yeah absolutely yes I came here it was a very very bold step for the board to appoint me because I was sort of wild card candidate and there were other more tried and tested theatre professionals in the frame but they took a big punt on me and I was very young at the time I mean about 36 which for a big job like that... You've just given away your age, Adrian. <laughs> yes, I have. Sorry. Well, that's, I think it's probably in the public domain. <laughs> it was a bold step for them. And I wasn't convinced that it was right for me. There were two jobs on offer at the time. And I'd actually accepted another one in Bradford. So it was very embarrassing when the chief executive of the city at the time reserved the right to come back. And they kept coming back and saying they really wanted me in this role, which was very flattering. But it made it a very, very stressful situation. Anyway, Elaine and I had a talk. The previous summer, we'd had a glorious family holiday down here in Hope Cove with our Mm. two young kids. And Elaine more or less said, well, it would be a nice part of the world to bring the kids up. And she said, oh, sod it, let's go to Plymouth. So on that basis, I had a very embarrassing conversation with a chap in Bradford whose I'd already accepted the role from. And we decided to come down here, not quite knowing what I'd bitten off, really. Right. So it was very much a vertical learning curve and quite a hairy first couple of years, really, because let's say the organisation wasn't the one that I'd been introduced to during the recruitment phase. We've all taken a job like that (laughs) in our times. I had one of those not that long ago. So what was different about it and what was the big challenge? You got 
got here. You're chief executive of, I take it, the building that it's in now? Yes, yeah, The absolutely. new building, yes, yeah, yeah, which is beautiful and one of the best theatres in the country. Yeah. Well, it was financial, fundamentally. Well, it was a very controversial decision for the city to build the theatre in the first place. And it was only got through the council by a majority of three. Wow. It was the biggest ever capital project that the city had committed to. And the Conservatives, who were leading group at the time, had a free vote on it and a lot of them were opposed. The Labour group at the time threw the whip in support of it, and it won by three votes, so it went through. But that meant that already half the council were against it. Before you'd even started. It was dubbed a white elephant, and there was lots of media attention to that fact. And it opened, and it had a terrible first few years. It lost what then was half a million pounds, now about two million pounds, over Mm -hmm. and above the subsidy available to it, which was, you know, colossal. So you can imagine how the media picked that up and the politicians kicked Mm -hmm. that around. That was written off by the council. There was a subsequent deficit to the same scale. And when I arrived, I'd been told that it was all going to be sorted by the Arts Council were going to increase funding and it would all be balanced quite nicely. But actually, the reality was, once the ink was dry on the contract, that they were facing an even bigger deficit. Mm. And my predecessor had said in his final paper to the board, he recommended shutting down all the producing activity, shutting down the drum and just turning the thing into a much smaller receiving operation. So that was a bit of a poison chalice to Mm. (laughs) inherit, especially given I'd had no professional background in theatre. So I didn't understand the business really. But there was an upside to that with the benefit of hindsight, which was... I made no assumptions Mm. and I just put a lot of my time into really deep analysis of the business model and historic trading and the kind of contractual Mm. deals. So I understood very quickly in a way nobody had bothered to in the organisation before the market, what worked, what didn't work and got to really underneath the skin of the business model. Mm. So that was the first thing. And the other thing was that the culture of the organisation was hopeless. Mm. I don't know whether it was the theatre industry at the time or just that particular theatre, but the culture was very autocratic. Mm. There was a huge amount of deference. I'd never come across anything like that. And that might have been partially the sort of garrison town, that military background Mm. in the city. But I'd go in the stage door and the stage doorkeeper always referred to me as Sir. Mm. And the front of our, I was Sir... And I remember a really embarrassing, my first Christmas there, been in post a couple of months and my PA came to me and said, it's sherry and mince pies today with the cleaners. I said, what? I said, well, no, it's, it's tradition. The building had been open about four or five years, some tradition, but anyway. <laughs> so lo and behold, there was a bottle of sherry and glasses on the table and there's mince pies and clotted cream. And I walked towards my office and standing outside sort of in a line dutifully were all the cleaners sort of looking at their feet and shuffling. And this was their oh moment of glory in the year where they got to sit with a poor old chief executive and he bestowed his favour on them of a glass of sherry and a mince pie. So I believe that was the last time we ever did any Not of that bad. stuff. And And there was a very low level of delegation. So many decisions went straight back up to the top, including the kind of bread that was stocked in the green room, the sort of staff canteen. It was hopeless. So apart from getting under the skin of the business model, the other thing was transforming the culture. And with the benefit of hindsight, I don't think I could have done any other way. But within six months, the whole entire senior management team had gone because nobody was prepared to step up to the plate and take the kind of level of responsibility that a senior management position should take. And because of the huge losses, I had to make about 20% of the staff redundant to cut the cost base. But again, with the benefit of hindsight, 
that was quite handy because you had an awful lot of very unproductive people mm. who were hanging around biding their time. And part of that clearing out of the deadwood and bringing in a new leadership team meant there was a sense of energy. Yeah, vibrancy, young, yeah, yeah. ambitious, go for it. Yeah, yeah, and I love that. that. And that changed. And from the year in which I arrived where there was a half a million deficit already kind of just fait accompli, the next financial year we made a surplus of £250,000. Well, and that was from changing the model, changing the nature of the business deals, which was quite fundamental really, and you know, proper business planning and a cultural change. You know, I learnt a lot there that, you know, it's remarkable what you can achieve mm. in the face of what something that seems like mission impossible if you get to understand your business and you've got the right people with the right motivation. I couldn't agree more. It was the same when I came to the chamber in that some people said, oh, God, there's a lot to be done there. It's like, yeah, I love it. That's the point. I can see what needs to be done. Let's do it. And we had a few changes, but the team I've got now, young, dynamic, thrusting, want to do it, want to be out there. Nothing's too big to take on. You know, let's do it. So that's really exciting, isn't it? And that's led from the top with culture. So yeah. you did that. As you say, it must have been tough. Yeah, because... <laughs> You know, it is a sort of fake it till you make it. But also, walking in there on the day one and all the people sitting around that senior management table said, he's never worked in the theatre. What's he know about it? Mm. You know, and having to act confident. Mm. And actually, the leadership fashion was the simple thing of getting people in a room and saying, right, this organisation's stuffed at the moment. Mm. This is the position. Nobody's going to bail us out. You know, mm. the city's bailed the place out twice. It's not going to bail us out again. Mm. There's nobody else going to come in with a magic money tree. So the only way this organisation organizations is going to survive and flourish is by the people who are sitting around this table and we've got to find a way of doing it and we have to do it together and it was that sort of bonding in the face of a crisis and team building in the face mm. of a crisis that led to radical change in direction really mm. so it was an object lesson really in what you can achieve providing you're clear about your values and that's i think the thing that we've consolidated more and more over the years in the theater has been sort of values-led organisation, yeah. which is where we have four core values at the heart of the organisation. And we use those when we recruit people, because we're very upfront about them. And we use them in terms of performance assessment. Mm. We meet people say, you know, it's collaboration is one of them, sort of creativity, mm. not surprisingly, in the other, inclusivity and quality. Mm. And they're very simple things. And, mm. you know, what's not to like about any of them? Mm. But actually, if you're serious about it and you start to define what those values mean for the organisation and then you drive them down into senior management roles, yeah. what it means for them, what it means for the heads of department and what it means for everybody, whether they're working in the workshops, manufacturing, manufacturing sets, whether they're in our education team, whether they're our catering team, our front of house team. Those values apply to everybody. Absolutely. And then if people don't want to behave in accord with those values, then they exclude themselves from the organisation. It's Absolutely. really not very painful. What's changed, I think, for me in the organisation is, whereas for the first quite a number of years, you were forever dealing with disciplinary issues and kind of having to get rid of people who weren't performing right or were difficult or were sort of sabotaging the organisation, mm. had their own agendas. And I can say hand on heart that for the last five or ten years really, we've had nothing of that. No, because the culture's right, the people are right. I completely get it. Yeah, and yeah. I've got to pick you up on something. Fake it till you make it. Well, well, you did clearly demonstrably have those skills. You were there for a long time. 
and you've done wonderful things 2000 shows i understand so did you do you still suffer from imposter syndrome do you think someone's going to one day say do you know adrian you don't know what you're doing or have you got enough in the bank now you can do it uh, i think i've just about cracked it just about cracked it just yeah. as you got to retirement there was a for a long time i'd still have those long dark nights of the soul mm. part of my motivation and drive was anxiety you know i think a lot of people need a kind of performance you have to have something that kind of motivates you and pushes you on yeah. and being worried about things not going right and going of off the rails is an important and as a chief executive you've got that all the time in a sense and so there were often over the years periods where i had sleepless nights mm. worried about you know the worst case scenarios that could unpack in certain circumstances. But I, I'm pleased to say that, you know, there's got a lot, lot less. In the yeah. last decade, they've not really featured yeah. in my life at all. I get that completely. I think it keeps you sharp. I can remember, fully enough, I was learning to scuba dive and I did my basic paddy, I did my advanced, I was started to do my rescue divers course and I said to the instructor, I still get really nervous before I get in the water, which is crazy, mm. you know. And the others seem to just throw their kit on and in they yeah, went. Yeah. And he said, Good. It's a really healthy, safe thing that it keeps you sharp. He said, I'm more worried about those who are just throwing their kit on and jumping in. Are they not really thinking about what you're about to do? It's very unnatural actually to put yeah. yourself in that situation. And I mentioned I understand the two thousand shows presented by Theatre Royal in your time. Got to ask the question, what was the favourite. <laughs> Everybody asks that. That's Sorry. just ridiculous. Well, you should have the answer now, shouldn't well, you? Well, yes, I know, but there's such a diversity of shows. Yeah. I suppose one is probably the finest piece of theatre I think I've seen, and we co-produced it, was something that's the antithesis of popular show. Mm. And then the other one was probably Mary Poppins, which we again co-produced with Cameron McIntosh and started here, which is probably the zenith of popular theatre. Mm. doesn't get more popular. So they were both ends of the spectrum. The first one was called A Disappearing Number, which was about a self-taught Indian mathematician in the early part of the last century. Mm. And he was literally brought up in rural India. He was a Brahmin, kind of spiritual mm. family, strict vegetarian. And he'd had maths books when he was at school and developed an understanding of maths beyond that. And he wrote out of the blue to the professor of mathematics at Cambridge at the time in about 1940, 1915, and just sent him pages of proofs that he'd kind of written. Mm. And the professor opened them and also thought, oh, this is rubbish, you know, loads of Indian stamps on this letter. And thought, well, I don't know anybody in India and what's all this? And he put it down. But he came back to it a couple of days later and started to give it some time and attention. And he realised this guy had, by himself, in isolation, solved one of the great conundrums of theories about infinity, transfinite cardinals and stuff like that. So Simon McBurney, who's one of our greatest directors, came to see me at TR2. I showed him around TR2 and he said, do you know the story of Hardy, who was a professor? And I said, yes, of course, Ramanujan was the Indian chap. And I said, yes, and there's this story about their personal relationship. I only knew because at university I studied the philosophy of mathematics. It was one of my ah, right, favourite okay. subjects. The most difficult thing I ever did in my life. The oh, level of abstraction is mind-blowing. Different orders of infinity and transfinite cardinals, it's mind-blowing. Anyway, he said, I want to do this piece of theatre about it. And I said, you must be mad. How can yeah. you make a piece of theatre out of something that's that esoteric? Yeah, yeah. He's an absolute genius. Well, if you know him at all... As 
was a choir master on The Vicar of Dibley. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah, he wrote the first Mr Bean film. He directed one of the Mr Bean films and he's been loads of spy movies. You know, he's yeah. a really accomplished chap. Anyway, he went away and he worked with various artists and developed and then he came to TR2 and they spent six weeks developing this thing. And we had the first ever preview of it here, few first few performances. It then went around the world. He developed it further. It won every prize. It won the Olivier and the Evening Standard Prize for Best Drama in the UK. Won a Tony on Broadway, Best Drama Critics wow. Circle out there. Went around the world to every major festival. And what was great was he came back and he wanted there to be one final performance. And we did it on the Theatre Royal stage. And it was the first time that the National Theatre had filmed a show outside of the National Theatre that went live to cinemas around the world. Wow. And the final performance of there. So it started with us and it finished with us. And it had three themes to it, really. One was, it was very funny at times, believe it or not. Lectures on pure mathematics. And there was a romance in it, a relationship and a love between two people. There was a spiritual level that flowed through it, and there was this sort of intellectual level. And what he's brilliant at doing, it's storytelling, is interweaving these themes all the way through until it comes right to the end where those three things are brought together. And in a moment when it all goes dark and the stage goes dark and the audience is just transfixed and nobody breathes for about four, five, six sessions, very precious thing. And then somebody claps and somebody else claps and then the whole thing erupts. Just fantastic. You know, it's storytelling and theatre is best. The alternative is something like Mary Poppins where it's just spectacle yeah. and entertainment. Pure show, yeah. And at the end of that, you know, as soon as you know it's the last song, everybody's on their feet cheering and gone. Yeah. They're the two opposite ends of the spectrum but both magnificent. Still to come... Jeremy Haywood of Lloyds Bank. I spend my time shouting about the positive things about this region. I think what we've got to do, though, is we've really got to work to give this region a really, really clear identity. Follow the Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce on Twitter at Chamber underscore Devon and search for us on LinkedIn. Make sure you don't miss out on future episodes. Hit subscribe now. You must have met some really fascinating and interesting characters in your time there because creative people by their nature are fascinating and outgoing and all that sort of thing. Who are the fun people you've surprisingly come to know and love during your time there? Yes, it's interesting because there's some people you see them on the telly you think, oh, I bet they're nice. Yeah. And actually you meet them in real life. Yeah. <laughs> Not so nice. They're then those people who what you see is what you get. And the best for me was Les Dawson. Oh, right. Oh, he's lovely. He right. came when he'd just got a daughter, Charlotte, at less than a year and... They came and stayed near us in what's now the Crown Plaza. They had a suite there. And his wife and my wife got to know each other and chatting. And I got on with him really well. So we invited him around for Sunday lunch and they brought the baby round. And we all had Sunday lunch together with our kids. And it was a Sunday lunch that went on for about six hours or something. Brilliant. Because we went through They're all the, the wine. Type. <laughs> then we got the kind of sherry. Then we had some brandy. God, God, could he drink? Yeah, man. It just went on and on. And was he as funny in real life? Oh, what you saw is what you got. Yeah. He couldn't stop himself. It yeah. was always a gag. When I picked him up from the airport, the first time I ever met him, I asked him how the flight was and he went into a routine. Just one of those always on. But in a very genuine way. He was mm. a lovely guy. And that was the year when they did, after the first performance of the pantomime, Michael Aspel appeared. And it right. was, this is your life for oh, Les. From here? Yeah, yeah. Wow. So Les was there taking the bow at the final curtain call, and the audience were clapping. And then suddenly at the top of the stairs behind him 
came Michael Aspel with his big red book. And the audience then went completely bananas. But Les didn't know why they were going completely bananas. Because they hadn't seen it. And then he turned around and saw it and it said, oh, blimey. So the audience all came back half an hour later and we did it live on the stage. So it was a nice thing. Wonderful. I always thought that was a bit of a strange show. I mean, lovely, fascinating. And people all, we were glued to it. Yeah. But I think... Would I really want to meet all those people from my life I haven't yeah, seen for a yeah. long time? Could There's be probably a, a reason dozen. I haven't seen Could them be for a, a long skeleton time. or two there, couldn't there? Or in my case, probably hundreds, yes. And I'm not wishing you to dish any dirt, but were there people you found really difficult to work with where, you know, if you're dealing with creators, I mean, famously, you get the diva-esque characters. Yeah, there the, are those. Or the lovies, you know, who just there are those. just so. Yeah. And you just say, okay, fair enough. You keep your distance, really, you know. The nice people are nice people. Joe Pasquale, you know. He and I get on really well. Mm. We went running on Dartmoor together a couple of times because he was training for the marathon. And again, he's... Just like the boy next door, really, you know. Yeah. Get on with him. Easy to spend time with. Well, you mentioned running. You've turned up in your running kit. You ran here. I, I have to explain this to people. You're so poor agent. If he sounded out of breath at the start, yeah. probably because you literally just sat there. I don't run anymore. You know, I used to run. Oh, what do you do now? Then you jog. And now I shuffle. You shuffle. Yeah. It's a geriatric shuffle, I'm Oh, it's afraid. hardly geriatric. Yeah, it, it well, we've worked but... out you're age 67. No, 68, actually. Oh, nearly ancient. 69, yeah. yeah. Did you plan to retire always at that age? Or no, you... a bit earlier. Oh. Really was thinking about it, but, you know, 65, 66. And I talked to my board about stepping down. But then Elaine said to me, well, you're still chairing Mayflower 400 yeah. and Destination Plymouth, and that was still on the cusp. So she said, well, we're not going to be able to go away and kind of or consider moving or changing our life, are we? Because you're going to be wedded to the city until then. Mm. So why don't you at least defer it till then? So I said, Mm. all right, well, I'll defer it till then. And then on the 19th of March 2020... We'd had a staff general meeting had been organised. My chairman and the nominations committee chair were all ready there, as was the headhunter. And I was going to announce to the staff my intention to stand down. Mm. And they were going to talk about the recruitment of my successor. And at lunchtime on that day, Boris Johnson announced that all theatres in the UK had to shut down. So I was four hours away from freedom. Four hours. Four hours. You nearly made it. Nearly made it. sadly, you had to stick with us for another couple of weeks. Well, sadly for you, not for us. I mean, it's been great what you've done for the city. I hope you're really proud of it. And you've been involved not just in the theatre, but as you say, Destination Plymouth and Mayflower 400 and a whole bunch of other things that have kind of got your good fingerprints on them what are you most proud of in your achievements in the southwest well there's tangible stuff isn't there sort of bricks and mortar stuff and then there's strategic influence i suppose and actually in terms of strategic influence i think setting up the culture board Mm. in about 2010 2011 and getting the first cultural strategy for the city which was a vital spark which we then used as an advocacy document, really, to get both the local authority and, importantly, and the private sector together. We had a number of major events at the NMA and elsewhere, brought in keynote speakers from around the country, to put the cultural regeneration of the city via a cultural agenda firmly and centrally in terms of economic policy. Mm. And the city adopted that, and irrespective of changes of political leadership, yeah. has saw that through. And that commitment was matched by the Arts Council, mm. who came in and rode in big time behind us. And that has been transformational yeah, of our city. Absolutely transformational in terms of the cultural infrastructure that the city now has. You know, we have the box, which we wouldn't have had before. Amazing. We've got nine organisations funded from the Arts Council, whereas 10 years ago we had two. Mm. Last funding round from the Arts Council, Plymouth received the biggest uplift of any location in the country. Great. And you're starting to get graduate retention in the city, whereas before, creatives, if they graduated here, they 
had to go elsewhere, mm. up to Bristol, back to London for employment. Now there's lots of micro businesses, creative yeah. industry businesses, the Market Hall and the Dome in Devonport. All of those are unique assets. Plymouth really has. In terms of cultural infrastructure, there isn't a city of this size in the country that can hold a candle to it. You've got the best regional theatre in the country, a national quality, one of the best museums in the country. And you've got a digital and creative industries hub in the market hall that's second to none. Well, in a city of, you know, 270,000, 280,000, that's remarkable. Yeah, it's brilliant, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. I mean, this city has transformed. I've said before that I can remember I was at school in Plymouth and I can remember people talking about Plymouth as a city with potential. Yes. And I got fed up of hearing that. But I genuinely hear now that it's a city that's realising its potential and it's really growing. And the vibrant cultural scene is really important. And why do you think that's important? important to business because I'm very aware our listenership is business focused why is a vibrant cultural scene important to them well it's all about an investment in the end isn't it and Mm. the quality of the workforce you can attract and retain Mm. and a city that is culturally vibrant and attractive to young people fundamentally it's about the brand assets of the city isn't it it's the brand qualities and brand values that a city exudes and we're Britain's ocean city, and I think that in and of itself gives an environmental stamp. That sort of quality mm. of life opportunity mm. that this city offers that very few other cities offer. Mm. But for years, it was kind of seen as something of a cultural backwater. Yes. If you now interlace that with a vibrant, modern, going, creative city and cultural city, then in terms of the external perception of the city as a place to live, to work, to study and to play Mm. is transformed. I mean, frankly, that was the whole, the key outcome that we were after out of Mayflower 400 was a transformation of the perception of Plymouth Mm. nationally, internationally, and actually in the eyes of its own citizens, Plymouthians. Because I think you could probably recall where there was a time when Plymouth and Portsmouth were... Uh, interchangeable. And confused I all the time. genuinely had people ring me saying they'd turned up for the meeting but didn't know quite where I was and they were in Portsmouth. Yeah. I mean, it's just madness. Yeah. But you're absolutely right. And I think the brand Plymouth, you know, I've seen it rebranded a number of times. People may have heard me say this before. I saw us when we were positively Plymouth. I saw yeah. Spirit of Discovery or as only as can they disco. crossed out the very so we were spirit of disco when britain's ocean city arrived i thought yeah i sort of get that you know i'm getting there but it was when the national marine park was announced and everything that is i thought finally we've got the civic identity and the civic pride with the box and yeah. with the theater and everything coming together we finally see plymouthians proud to be from plymouth which is a wonderful thing yeah and that launch of the Mayflower Autonomous Ship, yeah. the fact that it was on the 400th anniversary of the sailing of the original Mayflower, and that at that time on the Mountbatten Breakwater you had that No New Worlds yeah. installation. And that shot of the autonomous ship sailing out from the Mayflower steps with mm. the American ambassador there, sailing past that No New Worlds in terms of an interface of heritage, and modern technology, leading edge, autonomous kind of marine technology mm. and contemporary art, quite large scale, impressive contemporary art, all things fused in a moment that got international media attention, the like of which this city has never seen before. There's something yeah. like 200 million pounds worth of. We're on the New York Times, you mm. know, 
the Boston and the Washington papers. We were on CNN, yeah. you know, on prime time American media. So that's the perception of this city, yeah. not as just this quaint old city, but as a modern leading technological innovator and with a creative agenda. And that's the kind of transformation that we need because if people are going to invest in a business, they want a place that's kind of going places yeah. that's attractive for people to come and work and mm. live. And Plymouth is that now in a way that 10, 15 years ago was. Yes, Plymouth's got lots of potential. Well, now actually it's realised an awful lot of that. Yeah. But there's still more to do. And given the primacy of the blue-green agenda yeah. for the next 20, 30, 40 years, being Britain's ocean city and having the first national marine park in the UK is a no-brainer. Absolutely. And I like in the same way that we've declared ourselves a national marine park, sort of seek forgiveness, not permission. There isn't a book you can take off a shelf and say, how do we be that? So we're no. just going to be it. I think we should declare ourselves ourselves the world leaders in marine autonomy because we are you know let someone argue but we are and i think we need to get out from this sort of oh we're just plymouth little old plymouth and push ourselves on the world yeah. stage and say we do it right here messenger i've got to ask you about messenger mm-hmm. so public art is always controversial i think that's the point isn't it supposed to engender yeah, conversation land and everybody sort of said oh that's nice and it's arrived and it didn't disturb the fabric mm-hmm. of a society then what's the point yeah absolutely no point make people think and no, talk. absolutely yeah it was great <laughs> it passed me on the back of a lorry actually i was in the Herald offices talking to yeah. Bill Martin yeah. and this huge quite slow <laughs> went past and it's like oh my god so the next day I went to look at it I had to laugh because there was two old Plymouth ladies looking at this thing right. as I walked past yeah. and I heard one of them say to the other yeah it's too blimmin big isn't it <laughs> And I thought, well, what a really critical artistic approach. Well, it doesn't you... matter. There was a brilliant documentary. They were there and talking about it. Yeah. That's the thing. Yeah. yeah. Sky Arts did a documentary on it, Don't Shoot the Messenger. Yeah. Half-hour programme, which was terrific, actually, because it got the Vox Pops from yeah. both sides as she was coming in. And, you know, there were some brilliant comments like, she looks like Holt's big sister. Yeah. And, you know, like a big gorilla. And there were people who clearly hated it. But there were others who thought it was stunning, you know, and mm. there were people saying... I thought I wasn't going to like it, but she's beautiful, you know, mm. quite stunning. And what's lovely now is, I mean, the theatre's been on the national news a lot over the last couple mm. of years because we were the test case for the Arts Council and for the DCMS in trying to get the Treasury to unlock that funding to support mm. the cultural sector. So, you know, at news at 10, there'd be a picture of the theatre, but with a messenger outside, and that's the kind of iconic picture yeah. of the theatre now, So, which is, makes it very distinctive. That's what we need, distinctive things, things that get people yeah. talking. Ah, oh, that's Plymouth. And again, it was at 10 o'clock news, you know, the bringing her in by water, so that at sunrise she's coming across yeah. the sound with you know sort of drone shots out there. It dominated the BBC's morning programme. It was on News at 10. It was on the ITV News at 10 as a you know, major feature. Yeah. So again, perception of Plymouth, yeah. it's what it says about Plymouth. Portsmouth doesn't do that. No. You know, that's not Portsmouth. Plymouth is the cultural city that does that kind of radical stuff. I get it, and I absolutely love it. So, I mean, looking back, long career at the theatre, or particularly, what was the highlight? What was the most fun? What was where you mm-hmm. thought, this is cracked it? Getting TR2 open, which is still the best kind of facility of its sort in the UK, you know, a purpose-built theatre manufacturing 
and kind of rehearsal and education centre, having all those things together in a fabulous building. I mean, it mm. was the you know building of the year in 2003, Sterling Prize winner, mm. all that kind of stuff. Doing that, I mean, again, it was a roller coaster ride and plenty of stress, but a glorious achievement and a great sense of fun when we were there and pride. And, and I have to say, you know, Messenger was, I mean, again, terribly stressful. And, uh, you know, I laugh about mm. it now. But all that negativity in the media, and some of it was really kind of quite malicious and manufactured. I remember sitting on an um, underground train, and you know the Metro, mm. the free yeah. paper there. And there was a picture of, I think it was from the planning application, which was a artist's impression of Messenger outside the theatre. And the caption for it was... A giant sculpture of squatting sex worker. Yeah. Where did this come from? I heard about this. Again, it was just a small group of local people running a concerted campaign. And of course, it's very newsworthy, isn't it? Yeah. Of course, it's going to get picked up nationally. But I thought, blimey, there's this you know sculpture that's based on a moment in a performance room, you know, at TR2, when we were rehearsing Othello, mm. and there's this young actress jumps over a wall and lands and before she then leaps up, and the artist got a picture of that and a 3D scan and decided we'd go with that. And so this poor young woman, Nicola Kavanagh, who'd been about 19 or 20 at the time, making a, a sculpture based on a pose she struck, to suddenly be in made a campaign about it being about a giant sex worker was a bit mind-blowing, really, but anyway. Well, it's always detractors, aren't they? I remember when the Anthony Gormley Look 2 statue yep. was on the news and somebody in the background shouted, bloody, yeah, bloody waste of money, yeah, you know. Right, yeah. Oh, thanks for that. You know, there's always a detractor. Okay. But, yeah, we were on the news and there it is and it's a fabulous thing. I love the fact that still, when you're walking past, kids love it. Kids climbing over it, and still people are taking selfies all the time when the family arrives. Come to the panto, maybe they come from mm. up far away, and they all stand underneath her yeah. and have family shots taken from her. You know, she's kind of arrived. And I think that should be there for many generations to come. Yeah, I agree. Kids are so brutally honest and funny, aren't they? You will have heard this, of course, but the story about the hatchling. And I think it was somebody from Arts Council England, wasn't it, that was there. And a kid in front said to their parent, you know, so a 10-year-old said, God, this is great. If Plymouth keeps doing things like this, I might stay. <laughs> it's like, you know, that's, that's brilliant, isn't it? That's inspirational. Yeah. On behalf of Plymouth, thank you. I mean, well, Plymouth and the region, you've done fantastic things. You're very modest about it. What are you going to do? in retirement because you're not fully retired you're a dl aren't you yeah i do that stuff yes and i'm still chair destination plymouth and i'm on a couple of boards up country i'm on the board of the lowry and in salford so i'll keep tinkering away that i had been approached about chairing a few other things once i'd announced retirement but i thought i'd just let the dust settle yeah absolutely on it and feel what life is like without that yoke of responsibility Mm. because i've been the chief exec of something for 40 41, 42 years, you know, so the notion that you can actually wake up and you don't have that residual kind of concern about an organisation and then see what comes along. And I've never been great at planning things Mm. and needing to plan out my future. I don't get anxious about that because I'm sure something will turn up and providing it's something that I can learn from and that people feel that I can make a contribution, then I'd look forward to finding out what that might be. I'm sure you'll be making a contribution for a long time. So not bad for a guy who was faking it till he made it. Yeah, (laughs) Uh, you made it big and you've done wonderful things for the city and the region and for 
the cultural sector. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for taking time out to come and join us on In Conversation With. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you, Adrian Vinken. And now, Chambermaid, introducing business owners from across the southwest. Hello there, welcome back to part two of our In Conversation With podcast. This is Chamber Made, M-A-D-E, not M-A-I-D, which would be a totally different thing. And this is the part where we speak to members and other figures from around the region about their businesses and about their relationship with the Chamber and so forth. And today I'm joined by Jeremy Hayward, who is the Lloyds Banking Group's Ambassador for the Southwest of England. Hello, Jeremy. Hello there, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Now, Ambassador for the Southwest, that sounds great. It sounds like you should bring some Ferrero Rocher for us. Or something. Do you know, I haven't heard that one before. I bet you have a million times. Yeah. Uh, Mr. <laughs> Ambassador, you are spoiling us. You're absolutely right. It sounds very grand, but beneath it is quite an important purpose. Ultimately, as a bank, we are the largest bank in the Southwest. Uh, we have a lot of colleagues working in the Southwest, you know, nearly 6,000, and we have got a very important role to play. Never needed more than now as we all try and gear up to help Britain recover. Well, absolutely. I mean, that's got the plug for Lloyds Bank well out of the way. Your PR people will be very happy. Um, <laughs> but actually, in all seriousness, I read a lot about what you've been doing and what the bank is trying to do. And I thought there's so much of this ties in with the strategic priorities of the Chamber and our members that I thought it was really worth speaking to you and finding out a bit more. And And one of those things is really about sustainability, how we can embrace green recovery post-COVID. And I understand you've been speaking to a lot of businesses about that, helping them to become more sustainable, which is something that we as a chamber want to do. So what have you been doing with businesses to help them achieve the carbon net zero and become more sustainable as businesses? There's a lot of practical steps that we have within our commercial banking division, really focused on A, raising awareness, but then offering people tools and ultimately funding if needed to actually get on that path to net zero. I mean, we've got a commitment ourselves to be net zero, but it's broader than just what we do in our kind of day-to-day operations. It's actually also the businesses that we support. And we've got a direct link there in terms of doing that. But I think whilst there are those tangible steps, we did something at the end of last year called the Big Conversation, which was really thinking about what are the big topics that we should be focusing on. And the one I wanted to focus on was sustainability, because I think there's no more significant thing that we need to put both actions, but the hearts behind as well. And I think the biggest message that we got from businesses that we interacted through this were two messages, really. The first one was, yeah, we totally get it. But we need a bit of breathing space because ultimately we're just focusing on surviving at the moment. So definitely talk to us about it. Please realise that there's only so many hours in the day and we are really, really focused on getting through this. But I think the second thing that built from that is, yes, you can offer things, you can make sure that we're supported, but we are going to need some public policy that helps drive this and helps change this because rationally we think it's the right thing to do. We sometimes struggle to know where to start, and I think some of the tools that we can offer can help that. But we're going to need all the forces of government, regionally and nationally, to really get behind this and drive this forward. And it's certainly a message that we've been taking up the line with our various political contacts and stakeholders, really to sort of make that point. So, yes, hearts and minds is really key on this. There's real practical steps but a real feeling of 
coming together and a real feeling that we're going to have to tackle this in a very unified way because some of the small steps are just going to be quite hard for businesses to take, particularly some of the smaller businesses. I'm glad you say that. I completely agree. I think businesses reeling from the double whammy of Brexit and COVID, two words that I look forward to the day I never hear again on the news. <laughs> I don't think it'll happen anytime soon, but no. they're reeling from that double whammy. And what they absolutely cannot do is have someone say thou shalt or thou shalt not while they're just trying to survive. Recently, we held a British Chambers of Commerce Southwest conference ahead of the G7, and it was called C7. And it was looking at the challenges and opportunities of the green and blue economy. Blue because of our region and because of our marine autonomy and all the offshore floating wind farms and so forth that are being proposed. And what our asks of government, and I wrote to the Prime Minister afterwards, was to use a carrot and stick approach. So yes, consider carbon tax. Yeah, we understand that. There's got to be incentives. But you've got to incentivize positively with a carrot approach as well. How can we join together to do it? So I'm glad you as a group realise that and are going to help small businesses because we as a chamber want to help our businesses take baby steps towards it and realise that not all those steps are going to be easy or pleasant. But when you say hearts and minds, I can honestly say I haven't met a single business that doesn't want to be more sustainable. Another thing the chamber's been working on is skills. We've got a trailblazer bid in under the skills accelerator. And during this pandemic, especially, it's been hard for young people to get access to careers, to find out about what roles there are out there. And I understand you've done a bit around virtual working experience. Yes, every cloud has a silver lining in some respects. And I really think one of the things that will take us forward after this pandemic becomes a mere memory is the fact that accessibility through things like we're doing today, to be honest with you, these little conversations Mm -hmm. have become the norm. And they become the norm literally overnight. And so many people went from that day-to-day working in an office environment and suddenly they couldn't. They had to work from home. And it's transformed things. The opportunity that we've looked at is we did a lot with work experience and tried to offer it to as many people as we could. Now, you're obviously limited in terms of what you can do by where those people are and where you can offer work experience. And particularly when you come to the Southwest, there's huge coverage for those people in Devon and in Cornwall, sometimes offering work experience was quite hard to do. So we came up with the idea, more broadly, of offering virtual career tasters. As an organisation, clearly we're very large, but we have people working in almost any skill set you can imagine. Yes, traditional banking skills that you would expect, but within marketing, within transformation, within programming, within HR, within accountancy, we've got people working right across the board. So what we've built is a package of nine hour, hour and a half career taster sessions that people age 15 to 18 via their schools can access and they can join one of these. So it's very digestible. You know, it's not going to take them days and weeks, very short and sharp, but it will give them a flavor, importantly, of what it's like to work in a role in that area. And importantly for them and where they are now, what skills do they need? What are people looking for? And we rolled this out literally a few weeks ago. We've been very conscious that schools have had a lot on their plate. Head teachers just coping again, back to the, our point about business, the day-to-day survival. But since rolling it out, we've had loads of demand. 
and people wanted to get their classes in because they can see it, it could be part of the curriculum, nice and easy, and lots of demand. We're going to carry on running this as long as people are keen to access it and try and build and add different skills, etc. Well, that's great to hear. And I think you're right. What it's about is actually exposing young people to the sort of opportunities that are available. So mm. I think bite size is really good. Young people, especially used to digital, they're used to bite size. They just want to get to the point. They don't need to necessarily go somewhere for a week or two weeks to know whether something's for them or not. Let's just give them exactly. that taster. I was talking to one of our patrons, Princess Yachts, and they were telling me that they'd been to a careers fair and nobody was coming up to their stand and they're thinking but we're princess yes it's a world-class boat builder you know so they always had to sort of <laughs> drag young people up and say why are you not speaking to us and these young people would say well i don't want to build boats i want to be a graphic designer and they say yes. but we have dozens of graphic designers designing the boats the brochures the brand you know everything and they didn't know this so no. i really support what you're doing there and if we as a chamber can work with you on that that would be fantastic well we'd love to do that the other side to the skills is digital skills and actually enhancing them. And as you say, a lot of young people, they are natives. They've grown up with this capability. A lot of businesses aren't and there are sections of the population that are excluded at the moment that you want to try and build in. And we certainly were, with the Heart of Southwest, let around our access to our academy, which offers skills, etc. for there. So, yeah, I think our biggest challenge on this is not the production, it's the distribution. Yes, It's getting it to people who actually would benefit from it Mm. because often the people who would benefit are not the people we normally interact with no that's right that's been a big challenge for us in thinking about how we can just make this much more accessible and hopefully more people benefit from it the recovery is going to require a new focus on skills there's no doubt about that and hopefully a good opportunity to really accelerate things yes and we've got a program we're putting together as a chamber to help take businesses truly digital because i think people's understanding of digital if you're an older person i shall say is Mm. that it means you have a website and you can send email and as someone said to me the difference between you and young people is you talk about going online young people are online they just live online they are already in that space 24 7 so we've got that program lined up to actually take even more mature businesses through that process of going truly digital and see what opportunities there are out there so i'm really pleased you talked about accessing people so i think we're finally as a society waking up to what digital poverty is that it's not just access even to the devices i can remember not that long ago we collected some devices we distributed them as a city to people who otherwise wouldn't have devices great no broadband access no ability to pay for the data that is another blockage now i think we're getting there as a society but i think opening up opportunities for people is really important which leads me on now i've got to say this is the best named mp i've ever heard of i read that you have worked alongside thangham debonair what a fantastic name that is yes bristol mp i love that name i want to be called debonair there's no chance of that by the way but you've been working on boosting networking opportunities amongst black owned businesses is that right yes how did you do that and how's that gone well clearly the whole black lives matter movement created a level of consciousness that wasn't there and started to get people to discuss and understand and appreciate but certainly the feedback we had was that's great, but what can you do to actually help or tangibly help? So yes. we got a group of interested parties, including people that were successfully running businesses from the black community, young entrepreneurs, various enterprise partnerships, etc., to really just try and understand it. And two things came across very loud and clear from our perspective. One, there are so many institutional barriers to young black entrepreneurs accessing 
the right advice and guidance to get them going. Mm. Often they're from communities, often their families do not have that experience. And it's a real barrier. And often that barrier is exacerbated because banks particularly are seen as quite uh, cold, white, traditional businesses. And that was creating a real barrier. Secondly, you have a real challenge around just making sure that people can speak and access. Often where a lot of these businesses are, we don't tend to have a huge presence. Mm. The local bank, if it's there, is not going to be able to provide that sort of business support. So mm. we wanted to tackle those two areas. And what was absolutely fascinating through doing this session, we had a networking session afterwards, and you had young black entrepreneurs, and this is all virtual, in a kind of a virtual network with very experienced senior bankers who had spent a long time helping businesses. Now, their worlds would have never crossed in the past. No. But by bringing them together, you saw absolutely fantastic things happening. And it was a joy to see in terms of support and advice. So we're going to roll that out with a formal mentoring program and take our most experienced relationship managers and put them with young black entrepreneurs to try and see whether that can help. The second thing we're going to do is actually not worry so much about having our own premises, but go into community premises in areas with a large black community. And clearly in the southwest of Bristol, there's a very large black community and base people there so they can be a focal point. And people will know that they're going to be there at certain times during the month can come in and have a conversation, not about banking with Lloyds Bank per se, but about business mm -hmm. and hopefully to try and create some of the connections there as well. So very much we're trying to put actions behind the words of support, try some things, work closely with the communities and the black business networks and see what we can make from it and see if we can then roll that out more broadly across the UK. Well, I'm glad that you're taking some tangible action. If you'd like to feature on a future episode of In Conversation With, send an email to info at freshairstudios.com. Funny enough, I found myself in a meeting recently thinking of a line from one of my favourite films, As Good As It Gets, and Jack Nicholson says, I'm drowning here and you're describing the water. Yes. And I thought we were doing a lot of that in this meeting. We were yes. talking about there being a problem and I had to say, well, what are we actually going to do about it? So exactly. I didn't want as a chamber to do a tokenistic response to Black Lives Matter. I said, I actually want to do something that's tangible and actually breaks down these barriers. So I'm actually now sitting on a group with the Heart of the Southwest Lab looking at diversity on boards. How do we get boards to be more diverse and get talent from all aspects of the community yes including getting the right balance of women on boards yes you know my own board until recently was 50 50 male female split and just sheer coincidence of who put themselves up and got elected we're now actually male heavy which i don't like mm. i chair british chambers of commerce southwest and when we formed that the five chief executives stood there ready for a photo and we all looked at each other and realized we were all pale male and stale we were all white men in our 50s mm. it's actually taking tangible steps isn't it to break down these barriers and it I, is i think wonderful things happen when you bring people together put them in a room yes. and actually let them have a conversation whether it's a virtual room as we've had to or an actual room i agree i think it breaks down barriers. i agree i mean i think the longer term challenges are we have to tackle those as well you know there's no doubt about it we do not have enough 
black relationship managers within Lloyds Banking Group. Mm. And that is something we're working on through our race action plan, but it will take time. Yeah, of course. And I think you could rely on the things that are going to take time and say we're doing things, or you can try and do things in the here and now as well. And that's what we're trying to do. Well, funny you should mention that. And this is not a dig at Lloyds at all, but I think bankers generally haven't had a good rap in the last few years because of certain things that have happened. That must frustrate you when you see some of the good things that are coming out of it. What is your, not just your bank, but what is the industry doing about that? Well, you've got two things. You've got perhaps the ills of the past and how do we make sure that they don't repeat themselves. And there's an enormous amount of work going on Mm. with the regulators, but mainly self-regulation, just to make sure that we learn and things that happened in the past don't happen again. And that's key. I think from a perspective of customers and trust, because I think that's almost what you're getting to. This is about, are we trusted? There's no doubt that trust has improved. And a lot of it has been improved because, again, it's actions speak louder than words. Mm. And I've been working for Lloyds Banking Group for 33 years. So I've kind of seen lots of ups and downs and lots and lots of changes. But what has never changed is what customers actually want. Mm. They want you to know them, understand them, value them, and then be there to help them. But isn't that changing? Isn't that going the wrong way in the sense that your relationship manager is now part of a group, not you personally? But I mean, you know, you used to have one relationship manager. Now you call into a customer service center. You haven't got your branches. How are you getting over that? Because that is that personal touch where you felt like the person understood your business, which if you're a business person, it's incredibly personal. This is your baby. Yes. And you don't yeah. want to explain your baby to 20 different people. How are you? No, no, no. I agree. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think it hasn't changed those fundamental haven't changed how they're delivered has changed and there's no doubt about that when i started my banking career everything was done face to face or occasional telephone call actually a lot of businesses used to say well i don't really want to i have got the time to meet up face to face any chance we could do this by you know quick email or send me a text message or something we mm-hmm. oh, no, no. well of course that's changed so we do have to change with the times but ultimately i think it comes Stuart, from a real understanding through the last 18 months that we've all had through this yeah. pandemic that actually what you need is a really really good mix of the human and the digital. Definitely. And you need to make sure that it's in that right balance. And, you know, the capabilities that are there digitally are actually probably what is needed 95% of the time. I agree. It needs to be efficient. It needs to be appropriate. It needs to be timely. It needs to be relevant to you as an individual. When you've got those moments of truth, you want to know you get to speak to someone that can deal with you appropriately. And our challenge, all banks' challenge, is to try and meet that sort of demand. And, of course... I'm coming up with some wonderful statistics. We have for every shade of colour of customer that wants things that are slightly different. And that's a huge challenge for us. But what we're trying to do is not reduce channels. We're trying to make more of them and make them appropriate to the need. And we've got a way to go. There's no doubt about that. I actually think the response through the pandemic has probably been the most significant in building trust. And we see it through all the feedback that we get from our customers over the last 20 years. I think there's no doubt about that. And what we've got to do is to build from that now and not go back to the old ways, but to use it as a platform to do more of getting that right balance, human and digital. You talked about balance. and That really struck me, actually, because you talk about the past and the reputational issues because of things that had happened in banking in the past. And yet going forward, the customers want you to help share the risk a little bit. 
whereas you, you know some banks have perhaps taken too many risks in the past and therefore are now possibly at risk averse and i get businesses say to me but my bank the the sort of organization that will lend you money if you can prove you don't need it you know it's that mm. sort of well no i do need it but i'll share the risk with them but we want honest transparent conversations about that and someone who understands my business how does the industry mix those two that is something that i first heard 30 odd years ago I when bet, I, I bet. Was <laughs> sorry no no and i think this is my point i don't think it's changed i really don't no. it's about relationships about understanding we know when those businesses businesses which really do understand the business they're in they understand their markets they're set up well and operationally they make their case they usually get support Mm. i think our challenge is to really help those businesses that perhaps haven't quite got all of that infrastructure in place and actually help them to build the knowledge and skills to be able to go there and do the assessment and make the case to get the support that they need. And I think it's fair to say that the depth of skills and expertise that are within the relationship management population, we've just got to get that in front of as many customers as possible. And again, Back to my point about clouds with silver lining. Mm. Ultimately, the number of contacts that our relationship managers have with customers used to be limited by how easy it was to drive yeah. from Plymouth to Newton Abbott. Now, of course, you can do three back. or four times the number of contacts. Yeah. Yeah. And we're really seeing that. That 30-minute discussion never used to happen because it was yeah. always an hour and a half with two hours of traveling time either around. It's a fundamental game changer, and we've just got to use it to get that accessibility and get those people in front of even more customers and really just try and help with those foundational builds. You're right. I think there's that education piece about helping businesses prepare themselves for the time they need finance. The problem is they think about it at the moment they need it, and they really should have thought about it 18 months, two years ago, so they can get their accounts, their structure, everything right. And we held a finance fair in this very studio, and it was our most successful event. People really loved hearing about, okay, how do I get my business ready? How do I get it investment ready? How do I get it sale ready? Or how do I just get it in order so that when I do need to grow, I can? Yes. We're running out of time. I could talk to you all day. Thank you so much for joining us. I just want to ask you one more thing. What do you love most about our region? There's one word, and it's the diversity. And I love the fact that you can go from big cities with all the things that you want from that into countryside, particularly for me. I mean, I love the water. Mm. I'm a boat owner, and I love getting out on the water. You're a boat owner. I am a boat owner. You're my new best friend. (laughs) You get a lot of friends when you get a boat, don't you? You do get a lot of friends when you have a boat. Yeah, you also get good at knowing how to fill up with petrol. That's quite an experience to do. (laughs) But uh, yeah, but no, it's the diversity for me. We've got so much to offer in so many different areas. I spend my time shouting about the positive things about this region. I think what we've got to do, though, is we've really got to work to give this region a really, really clear identity because it's one of the things that we struggle with within the UK. People think of it in a certain way. We've got to get to think in a much more broader way. But yeah, for me, it's the diversity. We've got everything here. No surprises that so many people are looking to move into the region now that being in London or Bristol or wherever, you don't need to be physically there. People can travel. So it's great to see. Yeah, live nowhere else. I was saying to someone who's listening into this very interview that... They are in Waterloo in London, and I look out the window where I am, and I can see boats and swans and loveliness generally. It's a fabulous part of the world to live and work. We can, as you say, work from anywhere. Getting that identity of the great Southwest together, I'm working really hard on that, and that's why I chair British Chambers of Commerce Southwest. And businesses can work from anywhere, just about. And my plug, you started with a plug, I'm going to finish with one, that I finally got the statistic 
of business failures in the Southwest, 10% in a year. If you're a member of a Chamber of Commerce, 3.4%. You need to join a Chamber. So I hope you will persuade your customers that they need to join their local accredited Chamber of Commerce. That's my plug out of the way. Jeremy, been an absolute delight. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for giving up the time. Some great discussions, and I hope we'll take them forward in the future. Fantastic. Great to talk to you too. Thank you. In Conversation With is produced by Fresh Air Studios. Full audio production services for podcasts, live links, and corporate communications. Visit freshairstudios.com. Presented by Stuart Elford. Produced and engineered by Paul Philpot. Edited and mixed by Martin Burgess-Moon. Production support by Lisa Hartwell. Copyright Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce and Fresh Air Studios Limited. All rights reserved.